Well, we've sung that song multiple times now in the last few weeks, but um, it is an appropriate one for the text we'll be looking at this afternoon. As Jesus calls Levi, he uses some language that is directly quoted in this in this hymn. So you can turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 5. We'll be looking at verses 27 through 32. And as you turn there, I just have this question for you to ponder. What kind of people do you allow into your life? You know, when you think about the friends you have, the acquaintances, the people that you interact with on a regular basis, not the ones that you just wave to, but the ones you spend time with. What kind of people do you allow into your life? We're going to see an example of of that here in this passage, the, the kind of people that Jesus received. You know, he, he's been confronting sin and sickness that surrounded him wherever he went. In the previous passage, he forgave and healed a paralytic who had been lowered down to him through the roof in a Pharisee's home. And he forgave him and he healed him based on the collective faith of the man and his friends. Right? It was their faith that he recognized. Well, now Jesus returns to the task of calling disciples. He began there in this chapter, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, is him calling the first disciples, where he calls several fishermen to follow him. Here he returns to that task, calling Levi, a tax collector, also known as Matthew. Um, uh, But here he's referred to as Levi. And he'll emphasize something different in this passage than he emphasized in chapter 5, verses 111. I think it's an emphasis upon the kinds of people Jesus calls. So if we will not acknowledge our depravity, our sinfulness, then we will not hear Christ's call to follow him. We'll have no need to hear it. We won't think we're in a position of needing a Savior. So I think the the way this passage ends is really the, the climax. It's the main point of the passage that Jesus did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He didn't call to come to, uh, to come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So before we read it, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for this passage and we ask that you would help us to listen attentively that we would not be distracted by the things that are waiting us tomorrow or even later today. We wouldn't be distracted and daydreaming, but, but focused on this episode here in the Gospel of Luke. That we would enter into the story, we would feel what's being felt and understand precisely how we might apply this to our own lives and respond appropriately. May it bring conviction, may it bring comfort, may it do all of the work that your spirit is required to accompany your word for that work to take place in our hearts. So, Lord, as believers, we ask that you would do that once again. Speak to us, for your servants are listening. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Read with me Luke 5, verses 27 through 32. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. 
And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Amen. This is God's holy word. So we begin here with Jesus' call in verses 27 and 28. And he finds a tax collector. He sees him, observes Levi sitting at a tax booth. So this isn't just any average tax collector. This is someone who, who was in a position to have his own booth right, in a region. So he's somewhat of a director of tax collectors. And he has a, a greater position, of a, a greater income because of that. Um, and a, a greater notoriety among the people. And in fact, it's very likely that James and John and these other fishermen had gone to this very tax booth and paid their taxes. And maybe even in their own hearts are struggling to understand why Jesus would want to even interact with this enemy of Israel. Right? Tax collectors were Jews who worked for the Roman government. They were essentially... Uh, given a responsibility of collecting taxes for Caesar. And the only way they made money is by collecting on top of what Caesar required. So they were Jews working for Rome, and they were all considered traitors. Uh, they, They not only were traitors against their own people, but for many, they would have viewed them as traitors against God, rebelling against the covenant. So it was very common for them to increase their income by by cheating the people. And so it's not surprising, of course, that they were despised. That oftentimes when you said tax collector, you added to it and sinners. Here it says and others, but in other, other passages it says tax collectors and sinners. They're all kind of lumped into the same group. Right? They're despised. Jesus was not naive about this. He knew exactly what the people thought of these men. And yet he goes to him anyways. He goes to the despised. Not only does he go to him and interact with him, but he calls him. He says, follow me. And his call, asking Levi to do, it's effective. Levi couldn't really refuse it. And it was comprehensive. Follow me and leave everything behind. And that's what Levi does. Right? It can, this call of Christ is an effectual call. The call of Jesus compels Levi to respond. But it's not as if Levi's coming dragging, you know, he's not, Jesus isn't having to drag him to himself, kicking and screaming. Now, whatever hardness of heart this man may have developed... Uh, upon meeting Jesus, it was it was gone. It disappeared. So that grace, in fact, made him willing to go. That's how the confession uses the language. Effectual call is 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 grace changing a heart, 
changing the desires of Levi so that he no longer loved money, but he loved Christ more. So Levi leaves everything, just like the fishermen. In fact, in chapter 5, verse 11, and when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. It's the same, same phrase repeated here as of Levi. He leaves everything and he rose and followed him. So he left his lucrative tax booth business and he begins to follow Jesus. And, and so before we get to this next phase, because there's, there's really two parts to his response. One is he leaves everything, but then he, he responds with a, really throwing an extravagant feast. Right, but before we get there, the question you have to ask yourself is, is if, if there's anything you're still clinging to in this life. And it's so easy to think that we've come to Jesus, we believe him, we trust in him, and yet... All the while, really, trust in stuff, trust in things, trust in someone else, other people, our spouse, our parents, our children. Trusting them to provide us with the hope that we need, the comfort. And they'll fail. Your parents will fail you, kids. And parents, your kids will fail you. And they're not meant to bear the weight of that burden your job, your career, right? Are you still clinging to, to, to that as your identity? Right? We come to Jesus only when we say, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Right? We need to be willing to, to let it all go, to let go of everything, to leave it behind. And let, really, Christ restore what he desires in our lives. And so Jesus Jesus' call is followed by some complaints from the Pharisees. And, and the way the Pharisees come into the story is, is through Levi's invitation, right? They, his immediate response is to throw a great feast, to invite all of his friends to this feast. And Levi made a great feast in verse 29, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. Now, more than likely, they're sort of reclining and, and, and dining in the courtyard or somewhere. And, and so Pharisees, not having anything to do with tax collectors, would not have entered into the home. So they're watching from the outside. They're seeing Jesus is, has gone into this home where they know Levi has invited all of these tax collectors, these people that, that Jesus should have nothing to do with as the Messiah. In their minds, they think he's, uh, he's, that fellowship with sinner is a, is a compromise to the integrity of Christ. Right? And so, so a couple of things here. First of all, before we get to the, the Pharisees and the scribes and their view, notice Levi's response here. He, he doesn't just leave everything, but he takes what he has. He, in fact, in one sense, you would say he didn't quite leave everything. It's not like he left his home and he sold it. But what was he doing with that now? What was he doing with his resources? He was using them for kingdom purposes. He invites them all to come over, all of his friends, because he wants them to meet the same person who's changed his life, who's called him. And it's, and it's compelled him to leave his business. Right? So he invites them to come and he wants to, he shows great hospitality for the purpose of introducing people to Jesus. And again, we talked about hospitality this morning. We, we find hospitality throughout Scripture. 
the value and importance of hospitality. And I think it's an, it's a direct result of our understanding of the gospel. Right? Whether we're hospitable towards others, whether we receive hospitality as well. Right? The kinds of people that we're willing to receive hospitality from. So the Pharisees had it wrong, right? They began to complain. In this language you find throughout the Old Testament, and even in your English version, but in the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, it, it, it uses this language all throughout Exodus. Right? It's their, the wilderness generation complaining and grumbling against God. And so by Luke using that word here, anyone who was familiar with the Greek Old Testament, which is what they typically read at this time, not knowing most of them not knowing Hebrew, they would have they would have been they would have quickly understood the connection, right? That Luke is saying this is the grumbling, the complaining, this wilderness generation. The Pharisees are are in line with that generation that was condemned to die in the wilderness because of their grumbling and complaining. And their their claim is rather than, you know, inviting people to come as you are to God, the Pharisees only invited those who clean themselves up first. And, and in fact, this is a bit more challenging to practice. I mean, let's be honest about where we are, about who we're willing to open our home for. And, and we have instruction from Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 7 through 14. Let, Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible, for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So there is an appropriate separation from the world. As believers, we're, we're called to do that. In fact, our, the language of the covenant implies that we are to be separated, set apart by God's promises upon us. As his covenant people. So what does it mean here? And how can we understand Jesus' actions? Separation can certainly be called for in, in certain situations. But I think the key is that if you have a pharisaical heart, then you're, then you're not separating from sin as much as separating from people, from sinners. Right? And I think that's, that's different. Um, there may be a temporary time where you separate yourself from people who are indulging in deeds of darkness and wickedness. Right? You separate yourself from them. But what you're, what, you're, what you're separating from, or what, you should be, what should be compelling you to separate is, is, is to bring honor and glory to God with your life. You're not separating yourself necessarily out of a, a hatred for the people. Right, for sinners, it's not a despising of them. It's a despising of sin and darkness. So even the purpose of shunning, as we talked about this morning, we said there are people that need to be shunned, that you should 
separate yourself from. But even in that, the purpose of shunning is, in, in, in biblical terms, and as far as a church goes, when it's in the form of discipline, it's to first of all glorify God, right? To maintain or to to magnify His glory, which is being impugned by the sinner in your midst. It's to purify the church, and lastly, it's the reconciliation of the sinner. It's to bring them to repentance so that they might be restored. That's the goal. So the question is, when you're separating yourself from people, right? Is there, a, is there a desire to love them and to do this in a way that, that, that would call them to join in deeds of light, right? And de- not to separate from them because you can't stand them. Because you despise the person. Right? It's because you despise the sin. And I know that's challenging. It's very difficult and circumstantial, right? Like you have to kind of evaluate, take some discernment, spiritual discernment, to evaluate every relationship in our lives in this way. But I think what what Jesus exemplifies here is one who could be apart from the world and yet friends of sinners. Interact with those who many in society wanted nothing to do with, those who were despised. And the question is, are are there people in our lives that we despise? Maybe you have a perfectly justified reason. Because they, like the tax collectors, extorted you or something. They've they've treated you wrongly. Maybe you have a, a, a good reason. But your posture should be one of a willingness to forgive. A desire to see them repent and be restored. And maybe even to open up your home and invite them in. So Jesus was not embarrassed to be associated with the despised. And whether these Pharisees and scribes intended for Jesus to respond, it seems like they direct their complaint to the disciples. They're not going to Jesus. They don't want to be corrected by him. They go to the disciples and say, why why is he doing this? Why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and others? They, they, can, they bring their complaint to the disciples, but Jesus himself responds. In verses 31 and 32, Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And he doesn't allow grumbling to go unnoticed. He, he was regularly... And we'll see him do this many more times, regularly answering their complaints, bringing their complaints to the surface, allowing them to voice their complaints in front of others. Right, stop, stop gossiping about these things. Let's, let's bring this out into the open and let me respond openly to you. And he confronts them before these rumors can even spread. Not only the self-righteous would be offended by Jesus' statement here. Only those who think that they're healthy and righteous already would have a problem that Jesus came to heal the sick. He came to call the, uh, the sinners to repentance. Only those who think that they're healthy would be offended by that. And so it obviously was offensive to these Pharisees who had really no knowledge of true, genuine hospitality. And they didn't know what it meant to interact, to, to eat and drink 
with sinners. They didn't know what that was like at all. And it reveals quite a bit about their understanding of the gospel. Right? Their lack of understanding. Tim Chester, we, we read his book over a couple summers ago. On a Meal with Jesus. Maybe it was last summer. But he wrote this. I don't want to reduce church and mission to meals. But I do want to argue that meals should be an integral and significant part of our shared life. And he argued that hospitality, sharing a meal with one another and with those outside the church, should be a regular and significant part of our life together. In fact, Rosaria Butterfield goes even further. She talks about daily hospitality, as I quoted this morning. We have have examples of this throughout history. Those who really had an impact for the kingdom oftentimes did it through hospitality. I mean, there's, there's rarely an exception. And so the first step in coming to Jesus and responding in this way is, is acknowledging our own sinful estate, our own bitterness towards this culture, bitterness towards others, Our own need to come. Our own need to be restored. To feast with the Lord and Savior who rescued us. No one needed it more than the ones that were complaining. The Pharisees and the scribes, they were the ones that needed repentance more than anyone else. And yet they, they were content to just point their finger at everyone wag their heads and their fingers at everyone else, think that they were self-righteous. right? And it, and it does seem easy, even when we think of, of that. The first step is just acknowledging our sinfulness, and we say, well, sure, yeah, I've done that. That's, I, I did that a long time ago. But how do we respond when we're confronted with our own sin today? Right, kids, what do you do when your parents... Notice something that you've done. And do you deny it? Do you blame shift? Do you compare? Well, I'm not the only one who was there. Or, or what I did was just a small thing compared to what so-and-so did. They're, they're always doing this, and they're doing it much worse. And isn't that our tendency? And I'm picking on kids, but it's all of us. Right? We all respond that way. We don't take our sin Seriously. Until we pass it off to others, we do what the Pharisees were doing. So Jesus calls, the Pharisees complain, and then Jesus answers. And the point of all of this is that Jesus didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so we should be repentant. We should be those who are not only called to repentance, but living lives of repentance showing the fruit of repentance and the way that we show hospitality to others. Right? The call of repentance is the call to follow. It's the call to turn away from sin and to turn and follow Christ. It's that 180 degree turn away from our former life to follow and do the will of our Lord and Savior. So Jesus 
responds here at every situation that he's encountered with perfect accuracy. He knows precisely what those who are rebuking him or rejecting him or challenging him, he knows exactly what they need to hear, but not all respond. Not all hear it. And maybe we've sung this song, Come Ye Sinners, so many times, and we forget that it's for us to hear as well. Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Not the righteous, not the righteous sinners. Jesus came to call. And once we respond, once we freely receive that gift of grace that he's holding out for us, we recognize that we have everything. We leave everything behind to receive something far superior to anything we ever had. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for this reminder once again.